The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au I'm going to read together from Acts chapter 3, and we'll read from verse number 11, all the way down to verse number 26. Just a note about that little, uh, lots of little sermon notes you didn't hear. One there, it's twice the size it normally is, and what it is, is I, I had so many verses I want to put in front of you that I needed to use the back side for the verses. So if you keep it folded like that, you have the up on one side, you have a place to write your own notes on the back, and if you open up in the middle, you'll find all these verses. Just so, you, as a word of comfort and encouragement, I may not refer to every verse that's on this page, and I'm going to refer to verses that are not on the page, so um, keep that in mind as we go through. If you don't want to look them up, take the verse sheet at home. Look up some of those verses. Maybe you want to come back and think about something the verse said. Take your page, put a circle around it, and go back later and have a look. Uh, one of the most encouraging things I heard from one of you one day was, my wife and I went home and sat down at the kitchen table, we opened that note sheet, and we went through every single verse reference to what you were talking about and had a look at it in its context. And then we thought of more verses about the same message, and we spent the whole afternoon just going through it. Thought, praise God. That's exactly what we want you to do. Use those to engage and to be encouraged by the scriptures. Let's read Exodus, no, Exodus Acts chapter 3, verse number 11, beginning there. It says, While he, and that's the light man who was healed, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at us, or why do you stare at us, as though by our heart or piety we have made a walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over, and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the offer of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, 
the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, and you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. In Acts chapter 1, Christ was raised. He appeared to the disciples. He promised them that they would be his witnesses in 1 verse 8. And then they went back to Jerusalem as he ascended up to heaven. And the 120 gathered to pray in the upper room. Then in Acts chapter 2, we see Pentecost happening. The Spirit coming in power. And the men and the women going out in the streets and preaching the gospel in languages other what they normally spoke. Then we see that great scene where Peter stands up and he preaches Christ to them all. Christ is risen, Savior and Lord. At the close of that sermon, we see that there are 3,000 that come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. In the last few verses of Acts chapter 2, we see the early church life being described to us. And one of those things was that they were day by day attending the temple. And then in Acts chapter 3, the first part there, Peter and John are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, as was their regular habit, their regular custom, and there in front of them there is this lame man, and they see him, and God lays on them compassion. Peter speaks, and this man is healed by the power of God, and this great crowd gathers, and we all thought last week about this man as he's been healed. And he's so full of joy, and he's so exuberant, and he's jumping and leaping and walking, and he's praising God. The first thing he does is go straight into the temple. All of his life, he's laying outside. And now, for the first time, he gets to go into the temple, and he's so exuberant in a huge, huge place. His voice must have echoed around the courts and chambers of the temple, and words spread like wildfire. The lame man is walking and leaping and praising God. They all come to hear. And Peter gives an explanation. First of all, he removes any thought that it was by their power or their piety. He talks about how they denied the Holy and Righteous One that God had glorified. And then in verse 17, he pivots the whole thing around because you see, his greatest desire is not to talk about the healing of this man, not to talk about healing of our bodies for time. His desire is to talk about forgiveness of sins for all of eternity. How much better is that than just healing? Yes, as I said last week, I'll say it again. Every single person will be healed. Maybe the moment you step into eternity, and it may be this day or this lifetime, but everyone will be healed. But there is possibility, there is availability to all for the forgiveness of sins from now all the way through eternity. And that's the bigger topic. That's the thing he wants to talk about more. The lame man's healing is an illustration of God's power to forgive sin through faith. In Jesus' name. Now I was thinking about giving you a uh, logic and explain to you how Peter kind of works his way through. And I'll simply say that Peter just stacks up 
fact after fact after fact, he puts all these points in front of them that they know and they can show is real and true. And then he makes his application, and then he makes his call on the basis of all those facts. I'll summarize it like this. God keeps his promises. Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises. We're going to look through those five very briefly. But Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises he shows in the passage. And in light of that fact, in light of the fact that God keeps his promises, Peter's call and God the Holy Spirit's call to all of us through Scripture is this. Repent and turn back for the forgiveness of sins, for times of refreshing, and that God may send his Son. Now, if you look at your, your, your text there, you can see in verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. You can see in verse number 18, by the mouth of all the prophets. You can see in verse 21, he says, which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. In verse 22, you can see Moses said, he describes what Moses said. In verse 24, you can see that all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those that came after him. In verse 25, you can see you are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham and so on. And in the last verse there, you can see again how he's talking about the offspring and all the nations of the earth being blessed. So what's the point? What's this got to do with anything? The reality is that what Luke is doing is he's showing these Jewish people, these Jewish believers, how it is that they can understand their Bible, how the New Testament is a perfect continuation of the Old Testament. This is not something radically new. I mean, it is. But it's not like God is all of a sudden going left turn and done something totally different. This is just the next step in God's steadily unfolding plan to bring all things to a conclusion. And the focus of it all is Jesus Christ. One of the things I love as I read through this was just seeing how much Christ came up, how Christ-centered Peter's message is. Well, you got your note sheet there. I want to just give you a quick outline. I want us all to see four things this morning. Number one, that God fulfills his foretold word. We're going to see that when you get that right out of verse number 19, or sorry, verse 18, from what God foretold by the mouth of his prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And the basis for everything that he's going to ask of them comes on this one foundational fact. God keeps his promises. We'll see how that happens in a minute. Then secondly, God commands repentance. And thirdly, God promises blessing for obedience. But fourthly, God also warns of disobedience. Let's go through it. First of all, God fulfills his foretold word. Why should we repent? I mean, what is the motivation? What is the drive behind us that says we should repent of sin and turn back to God? Why should these people, standing around Peter and John and the lame man, hearing them preach, why should they repent? Why should they believe his words? The driving force behind it is that God keeps his word. I want you to see in verse number 22 that God raised up the prophet like Moses. You see that he says there. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. 
And God made that promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 18. And the Bible tells us there. Genesis chapter 8, the Bible tells us there that God will raise up a prophet. We will come and be like Moses, and we should listen to him. The Bible tells us in John 12, verse 49, how I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. God kept his promises. The prophet that Moses promised he came, and Jesus was him. He promised it. He kept it. God keeps his promises. Why should they repent? Because God kept his promise. Notice secondly, verse 18. He says, God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer. And you can go back to the Old Testament and look through text after text after text. It starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And the serpent will bite his heel. He's speaking about the, the bruising of the Son of God. You go forward to Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, those great texts that speak all about the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can see it's promised there, promised there. You go back to Luke 23, Luke's first volume that goes with Acts. And what do we see there? That Jesus Christ suffered. He has just made the point to them up in verses 12, 13, and 14. That God glorified his servants whom you delivered and denied over in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. He's making the point to them that God foretold that his Christ would suffer and they had just seen it happen 50 days earlier. Maybe more. Maybe a couple months earlier. God keeps his promise that Christ suffered. Notice thirdly in verse number 21 that God promises the restoration of all things. Let's read together. We're talking about the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Say, what is he talking about when he says the time for restoring all things? That time is speaking about the time when God will give a new heavens and a new earth. It will be a new creation. Don't fall too much in love with this earth. Yeah, we should take care of it. Absolutely, it's God's blessing to us. It's our home for a time. But the reality is there's going to come a day when God is going to wipe away this heavens and this earth and make a brand new heavens and a brand new earth. The Bible tells about it in Isaiah 65 and verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Jesus himself spoke of it in Matthew 19. He said, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Peter again warned us about it in 2 Peter 3.13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness shall dwell. He promised that that's going to come. God made that promise. Jesus confirmed the promise. Peter reminded again, he is going to keep that promise. Why should we repent of sin? Why should we turn back to the Lord? Because he is going to keep those promises. 
Notice also, fourthly, in verse number 24, the Bible says that God promised through Samuel these days. Let's read it. He says, All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. What's he talking about? What are these days? And scholars will look back and they look through Samuel and try to figure out what exactly Peter was referring to. And I think I found the answer. I didn't stop. I did read it down from guys who had about it. Take your Bibles. Go over to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 15. First Samuel 15 and verse number 28. Some of you remember the story. The Lord through Samuel has sent Saul out to fight against the enemies against the Amalekites, he's been told to go and destroy everything. Men, women, children, animals, everything is to be destroyed in God's judgment against Amalek. And so, I mean, Saul returns and brings back sheep and goats and keeps alive uh, Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 28, we hear the ending point of Samuel's meeting Saul and giving him the judgment of God. And this is what he says in 1 Samuel 15, and verse 28, uh, 27 to, he says, As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and the top tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. What the, the, the scholars have concluded is that when he makes that prophecy that there is a kingdom being, your kingdom is going to be given to a neighbor who is better, who do we all think of? David, right? And he's coming next. He's the next king. He's the one that's already been or about to be anointed the coming king. And what the scholars would say is that statement is has a twofold fulfillment. It's fulfilled, first of all, in David, but its far greater fulfillment is in the son of David who is coming. You say, what does that got to do with Acts chapter 3 and the words there who prophesied about these days? Those days are spoken of there are the days when Christ is ruling and reigning on his king. He is ascended on high. He is seated beside his father's on the throne, and he has sent forth his Holy Spirit. And what the, the Jews are seeing in the early church as spirit-filled believers are being converted and changed and there's forgiveness of sin. There's even healings and that sort of thing happening as well to testify to the validity of what God is doing as he speaks through the apostles and so on. But the days he's speaking about is Jesus rule and reign over all the peoples. He speaks more of it. In uh, Joel 2, 28 and 29, you know the story there. As Joel prophesies, it shall come to pass afterward or in the last days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream and so on. In Acts 2, 17, 2 Timothy uh, 3, verse 1 and 2 Peter 3, verse 3, they all speak of the last days. Now, to the Jews, that was a very particular phrase. We think of the last days and go, so what? That's just a phrase, three words. 
But to them it was very significant. It spoke of the days after Messiah had come and after Messiah had begun to rule and reign. So when he says that the sound of all the prophets had proclaimed these days, that to them is highly significant. We know in uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 22, the Bible says, In these last days, God spoke through his Son. I am speaking about God speaking through Jesus. So God promised these days would come. He promised that the Son of David would rule and reign. And Peter is standing there saying, All those prophecies, all those promises about the Son of David, the Messiah ruling and reigning, they have come, and we are now in those last days. Why should they repent and turn away from their sin? Why should they realize that everything they're doing as they've gone into the temple to worship with animal sacrifices, so on, it's all wrong. It's all going the wrong way. That's all been put aside. It's obsolete. It's no longer required because Jesus has suffered and died. God has made those promises, and God always keeps his promises. One last one in verse number 25. Notice God promised and sent Abraham's offspring. In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, many will remember this great text. It says that the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And listen, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God made that promise all the way back. And Peter's now saying in verse 25 and 26, he's saying, God made a promise with your father, saying to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, he sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. He's making that promise. You say, how do we know for sure that's Jesus? How can we say that that person that in this sea will all the nations of the earth be blessed? How do we know? As you asked, the Bible tells us in Galatians chapter Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Jesus Christ. So what Peter's doing is he stands there in front of all these Jews and there's thousands of them gathered around. He's speaking on this portico, this great big amphitheater. You're all listening to him. He's saying God has fulfilled his promises. God promised he would raise up a prophet like Moses. Christ is the one he raised up and he spoke every word that the Father gave him. God promised that the Christ would suffer, and you yourselves have all seen, you were there, some of you, as Christ was delivered over and nailed to a cross. You've seen it. God kept his promises. God promised the restoration of all things. He's going to bring a new heavens and a new earth to bear, and one day it will happen soon. If God kept those promises, he'll keep that one. God promised through Samuel the prophets these last days, Christ is now ruling and reigning on high. We're witnesses to this. He's ruling in our lives. He kept his promise. 
And so you get through all that, and then Peter makes that statement in verse 19. And my Bible has it, repent, therefore. I like it the other way around. Therefore, repent. So what difference is that? Well, it, it's a connector. So it connects what he just said. Because God has fulfilled his promises, there is a conclusion. There is an inference. There's a suggestion that has to be made on the basis of all those facts. And the fact is that we must repent and turn back that our sins may be blotted out. Now, it's easy to read this and go, you know, I wasn't there. I wasn't born for 1,969 years after this all happened. 39 years. And I was a little bit long before my time. How can you say I'm guilty of what's being done here? I didn't shout for his death. I didn't clamor the streets and shout crucify and crucify with all those other Jews. How am I responsible? And the reality is that every single one of us who has committed a sin is responsible for Jesus' death. Because his death was in my place and your place. His death was on behalf of you to set you free from your sins. That you can be washed and cleansed and made right with God. So every single one of us has committed sin. And therefore every single one of us is guilty of Jesus' death. And because God keeps his promises, he now calls on us to do something in light of that. And that's repent and turn again. So second main point is this, that God commands repentance in verses 19 and 20. The word repent is the word metanoio, and it means to have a change of self. It means to have a change of heart. And we often think about this as like just the way we are, but we kind of turn around and kind of go the other way. But, you know, I'm still the same guy, I'm just going in a different direction. Actually, the word has a bigger meaning than that. It means to abandon all former dispositions and behavior. It means a radical new behavior. If any man is in Christ, he is our renewed creation. No, he's a new creation. It's all new. It's all completely redone. They and we must change the way we see Christ. Up until this point, what did they see of Jesus? They would have seen him as an upstart Galilean. This guy from a backwoods place called Nazareth, a carpenter whose parentage is a bit questionable. They would have seen him as a rabbi who came and said all kinds of crazy and outrageous things. He was a rabbi who, when they tried to trick him up, could never manage to do it. He was a rabbi and a teacher. He was penniless. He knew nothing. He always was arguing with the Pharisees. They had to have a radical change of view. And all of a sudden, they need to see Jesus as the author of life. They need to see Jesus as the holy and the righteous one. They need to see they need to see the lame man standing there and say, Faith in the name of Jesus make that man whole. This is God's servant. This is the one who did not, though he did glorify God, but not only did he glorify God, but God glorified him, which is totally different than what they're in the heart and understood. There had to be a complete and total change of heart and mind and attitude. They had to see Jesus differently. God keeps his promises in light of the fact they needed to repent. They need to repent in light of God's coming judgment. The Bible tells us in Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. This is Jesus' first message. He goes out to preach and guess what he says? 
says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's in your sermon notes here, by the way. Yet that was his first message. In Luke 13, he's there with some of his disciples. And some men come and tell him, they said, you know what happened? Pilate took some guys who were worshipping and he burned them with their sacrifices. Listen to the story, Luke 13, it's in the notes you. Verses 2 to 5, and he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all those who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. God's judgment is coming, brothers and sisters in Christ. Just kind of for a second. Some of you are thinking, you know, I love the Lord. I live a life of always repenting of sin. I trust the Lord completely. I know I'm sa- I know I won't face God's judgment. And you know, if you're standing there, let's call to the back of your head. Why am I hearing this again about repentance? Two things I want you to know. Number one, repentance is not a once-only thing. It's a continual lifestyle of repentance. We're constantly putting off sin and putting on Christ. That's one. Number two, look around. There are men and women. We pass millions of them. Every day, driving to and fro on the highways, we see millions on TV, we see thousands of them, probably we see hundreds of thousands of them every day. They need to repent. They didn't know that judgment is coming. We're called upon to repent or they perish. If we're nothing else, listen to this message and let it remind you to be living in a lifestyle of repentance. But let it also remind you to go out and share the message of the gospel, the true message of the gospel. Not just that Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life and you can make an already good life even better by trusting in Jesus and just kind of round out your whole life. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that you need to give up your whole life and follow Christ. Praise a couple of us, my pastor friend and I, were sitting here on uh, Thursday and Friday and we were having coffee and just thinking about this. He said, you know what? I think the reason why we don't pray and the reason why the gospel falls on deaf ears is our society and the culture we live in. We don't need God. We've got so much. We're so wealthy. We've got everything we need. We need to touch a button or a handle over a credit card. We can get it all. We're talking about churches in Korea where they gather and the church gathers at 5 o'clock in the morning. 1,000 people come into the building and they pray for one solid hour. They file out and as fast as they're filing out one door, 1,000 people are filing back in the other door. A new group of people, for another hour, they pray. And we said the reason is, that we realized, the reason is they need God. They have nothing else. He was speaking about a friend of his named Charlie. He's a Chinese fellow. He goes over Charlie Zhu. Some of you may know him. He goes over to China and preaches. And Charlie's not the most talented gospel preacher in the world. He's a good guy. He goes for a couple of hours of teaching and preaching and teaching and preaching. And he's, he's getting tired. He says, you want to take a break? No. 
The Lord just keep going, keep going, keep going. Why? Because you're only here for so long, and we have so little access. We just want it. We're so hungry for it. And we live in a world that doesn't need God, or we think we don't need God. But I actually tell you a story. I may have told you before, but I'll tell you anyway. Um, there was a bridge washed out on a road, and there was a big kind of fog over the road. And a man came up, and for some reason, he had the sense he needed to stop, and he stopped, and he walked forward. As he did, he got to the edge of the bridge, and he was just in a chasm. He went back and he thought, oh, I'm going to stop people from going there because it's a busy road. And he went back and he began to wave and he couldn't stop. Stop. The bridge is washed out. Stop. The people were mad and they go around him and he literally heard the cars going over the edge. He said, they thought they didn't need to stop. They thought the way they were going was absolutely fine. They could carry on without any regard. This idiot on the side of the road was waving up and down and making a big noise and shouting. They didn't want to stop. They just kept right on going. And he heard one car from another go off the edge. I don't know if that story is true. It was just an illustration to make the message of the gospel clear. I was a little guy when I heard it. So we'll assume one or the other. But the point is absolutely clear. Peter's standing there in front of all those thousands of Jews. I can imagine there are priests and Levites. I imagine there's the high-ranking officials of the court of the, the temple system are all there. And he's saying, this rough Galilean fisherman is saying, you need to repent. You're all going the wrong way. In Acts 8, 22 and 23, repentance is there. Repent of wickedness or pray for forgiveness. In Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, the Bible says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. I believe that's Paul preaching up in Athens. Could be wrong. He's preaching. He's saying, listen, God has appointed a day. Judgment is coming. That was 2,000 years ago. That day is 2,000 years closer than it was in Paul's day. And he powerfully impressed Paul. He stood up in front of big people and said, listen, you need to repent because God has fixed a day when judgment will come. In Acts 26, verses 19 and 20, Paul is standing in front of King of Britain. He said, I was not to be disobedient to the heavenly vision but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. You may remember the scene where John the Baptist is on the shores of the Jordan River, and he's baptizing these people. They're coming up out of the water, and they're confessing their sins, and being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And some Pharisees walk up as well, not sure what they were doing there. Maybe they came because they genuinely wanted to repent. Maybe they came because they just wanted to see what was going on, who this Nazarene was. And they come along and, and John the Baptist looks at them and says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. What's he saying? 
He said, you need to live a lifestyle that displays that you no longer live for yourself, but you're now living for God. Live the repentant lifestyle. And Paul is saying the very same thing to King O'Brien, to repent and turn to God, performing the deeds that are in keeping with repentance. So what kind of sin are you talking about that we need to repent of? Disobedience to parents needs to be repented of. Sex outside of marriage is sin that needs to be repented of. And I'll say this without hesitation. Homosexuality is a sin and it needs to be repented of because God will judge homosexuals one on the side of fornicators and liars and thieves and adulterers in the same way. They're not different. Lying and deceit needs to be repented of. And you know, those things are serious and they're heavy and they're weighty, but you know what? How about this? We need to repent of our failure to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We always think about the sin in terms of the things that we should be doing or we shouldn't be doing. But what about the ones that we should be doing? The sins of omission. Brother and sister, maybe it is this morning as you're sitting here, you need to hear this. Failure to love your neighbor as yourself. That's a sin. What are the commandments of God, the two great commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. If it's a sin, if it's a commandment, the failure to do it is a sin, right? It is. Failure to love our enemies. Failure to love our brothers and sisters in Christ the way we ought to love them. So brother and sister, maybe you know the Lord. Maybe you're, maybe you're living for God in a lot of ways. But you know what? The failure to love brother and sister, to pray for brother and sister, to come alongside brother and sister and share the scriptures, to encourage, to build up. I hear this. My own conscience is poked. I don't mean prick, I mean poked. Because I find it easy to push and keep people at a certain distance. It's the way I'm wired. But it needs to change. We need to repent of failure to love brothers and sisters. Repentance is not separate from faith. Repentance is an act of faith. As I turn away from sin, I am turning toward God. And my lifestyle is changing in repentance and faith in God that He will accept me. But you know, I don't want to end. I don't want to end on this. I want to end on some of the tremendous blessings that God gives in response to obedience. Notice in verses number 19 and 20 and 21 there, he says, Repent therefore and turn back. And he gives three vows, three purposes. That, number one, your sins may be blotted out. That, number two, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that, number three, verse 20, he says, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. To summarize, we repent because of a forgiveness of sins that is available for refreshment in the presence of the Lord and the soon return of Christ. We'll just look at the first two for sake of time. We repent because God blesses us with forgiveness. The word there literally means to blot out, to obliterate, to wipe clean. In the old days when they were writing these letters in the papyrus, and the papyrus they use a certain kind of ink, and in the old, old days ink doesn't have a, a, an acid in it. I, I use a, 
had a wonderful gift for the pilgrims it's a fountain pen. I love my fountain pen. And when you write on it, a little ink comes out the end. But I noticed the other day that when I used a highlighter on top of my fountain pen, it just bleeds blue and, and orange, which is really kind of a weird color when you do it. But it can wipe the ink off. Certain types of ink don't have the acid they need to bite into the paper, and so you can't erase it. In the day when Paul was writing, he used a formula for ink that they all had. He's writing on papyrus, and the ink didn't soak into the papyrus and ran on. So if you made a mistake, you picked up a wet sponge and you go, like a whiteboard eraser, you know? And it just wipe away. Well, that's what he says here. He said that your sins may be blotted out or wiped away. The other thing means that beyond that, it's the voluntary, willing choice to release the debtor from his debts. God willingly releases us from the debt of death. We owe God our debt because of our sin. And God willingly releases us from the debt of death. When we repent and turn back and repentance incorporated faith, God forgives our sins. Forgiveness requires a confession of sin. We come before God, and what do we do? Say, so what's confession? It isn't going into a little box like the Catholic Church does, but what it means. It's the idea of agreeing with God. I read your word, Lord, and I see there that I'm a sinner. I see there that there's no hope for me outside of Christ. I agree everything you said is true. I agree that I'm a sinner before you. Please forgive me for my sin. Consider what the Bible says about the promises of forgiveness. They're in your notes sheet again. Psalm 103, verse 11 and 12. The Bible says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love. Can you measure the height of the heavens above the earth? <laughs> no, it's an infinite distance. Nobody can measure it. That's how great his love is towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, a straight line, you cannot plumb that distance. You cannot figure it out. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. He forgives. Isaiah 1.18 is a beautiful picture of what forgiveness is like. And God is speaking to his people. He says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet. Whenever I read this, the only thought that goes through my mind is a wedding dress. Beautiful white wedding dress, maybe like pants, my great long train, pure white. And someone walks up with a big gallon of scarlet red paint, maybe like the color of Irene's jacket, and goes, mm, and the, the paint's going all over it. And we go all back and go, ooh, that's rude. Thank you, you're not going to get that clean now. But Isaiah says, listen, come let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as wool. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What's he talking about? A complete and utter removal and erasement of those sins from us. He cleanses us. He washes us. He forgives our sin. Isaiah 43 and verse 25, the Bible says, and it's God speaking, I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Think of that. My own sake? I said, what does that mean? 
it literally means that God, for the sake of his own glory, forgives our sins. He loves to forgive because in forgiving you, he glorifies himself. And brothers and sisters, we repent, we turn away from sin, we turn away from the things that offend God, and we go to God and we cry out to God for forgiveness, and God glorifies his own name in front of all of the angels, and he forgives our sin, and he chooses God to remember them anymore. In Micah 7, 19, he has compassion on us. He cast our sins into the depths of the sea. As one smart brother said, he posts a sign, no fishing can't go back into heaven and dig them out. I've said it before, I'll say it again. God is not short of memory. He is the omniscient God. He knows every single fact, every single bit of information, past, present, future, possible, actual. There is nothing that God does not know. But it says, I will not remember. He chooses voluntarily, willingly to wipe it from his memory. Brothers and sisters, what a joy. What blessing we have in Christ to be forgiven, to be set free. We're going to go back next. The last one we look at. God keeps his promises. Christ is the fulfillment of promises. Christ spoke the words of God so we could be forgiven. Christ suffered to pay the penalty of sin so we could be forgiven. Christ will bring a new heavens and a new earth, and we will enjoy the restoration of everything, having been forgiven of sin and set free and cleansed. There's also the blessing of refreshment in the Lord. Look what Paul, uh, Peter says, sorry, in verse number 20. The second that he says, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You ever have someone a really, really hot, dry day give you a glass of cold water? I was working the first day and it was really hot. I was 38 or 90 degrees working outside and I had a, 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 a two liter jug. I just kept filling it up and drinking, filling it up and drinking. And when you're really hot like that, you know, one moment I was so hot, I took my hat off, I took the thing of water to hold my head and water everywhere. Oh, that's so good. There's a tremendous refreshing in that moment. That word for refreshing means the cooling touch. It means a cloth applied to a fevered forehead. It's the rest that they were to enjoy on the Sabbath. It's joy and restoration to the soul. Listen to what the Bible says about it. In Exodus chapter 23 and verse 12, it says this. Six days shall you do your work, on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the sons of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. There's something amazing about having done a long day's work, and you lower yourself down into your... I'm 50 almost, right? And we've been a carpenter for many years, I'm like in the bed nights, like all the creaking and groaning and joints moving, and you lay in bed, and there is, I'm telling you, there is a feeling like no other. On a hot day, and you have a really cool bed, and you lay down and just lay on the bed and fall. There's that tremendous just release and refreshment as you lay down. When we know forgiveness of sins from God, when we repent of sin, that's the refreshing He brings and He gives. First Samuel 16, verse 23. Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon the soul, upon Saul, sorry, the king. 
David took his lyre, his guitar, and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. You know what it's like to have a troubled soul, have a troubled heart? You know what it's like to be resting and grieving with grief over sin? Or resting and grieving over heartaches and headaches and just surrounding you. And all of a sudden, someone comes alongside of you and they share a word. They say, pray with you. They do something and there's that release. And your soul is just rested and released. There's a refreshment in your soul. The gospel of God's grace. Wonderful grace of Jesus. You were singing a minute ago. The gospel of God's grace is the greatest refreshment and joy to the souls of men and women that we will ever know. But Peter says, repent, turn back, you're going the wrong way. You can know forgiveness of sins and refreshment for your soul. Times of refreshment will come. Psalm 16 and verse 11. Listen to this. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, this is the same idea, same context. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand of pleasures forevermore. Brothers and sisters, we think we can find joy in all the crap the world tries to sell us. All the junk, wealth, money, power, prestige, position. We scrabble and fight and try to get something that we think will make us better than everybody else. We claw away for it. And the end of all crumbles to dust. I was thinking about the wealth that our world, our society knows and enjoys. I love other architecture. Um, being I love looking at beautiful houses that have been well made. I love looking at well built woodworking. I love Japanese carpentry. Their skills and carpentry is enormous. I start to think about that. I think I spent some time in my spare time maybe messing with it a little bit. But you know what also hits me? Think about people I know. Some of them drive around in some very expensive, very nice car. I have driving a beautiful 100,000 plus car. Amazing. You know what? What do you want? I'm so glad you did because you're exactly right. So what? One split second into eternity, none of it will matter. But you know what the psalmist says, and what Peter says to these people here? There is refreshment to your soul. Refreshment to your soul when you repent and turn back to the Lord. The psalmist says, listen, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Think of that. Not just the, the, the Peace, pithy, throwaway joy that the world stopped in here. Go to a car dealership, pay $100,000 for a car. Get in the car, turn the key on, you sign the paper. Guess what? It's now worth $80,000. Drive off the lot, it's now worth $75,000. But then you get to the first petrol station, it's worth about $70,000. Depreciation. There are all those. One split second into eternity, joy starts. What is it, baby? When does joy in eternity fade? Amen. And Peter is saying to these people, listen, repent, turn back from your sin. You'll know forgiveness of sin and you'll know refreshment in the presence of the Lord. 
I go back to that, that song that we read a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 37. Take your Bibles, we'll flip over there and we'll finish with this. Psalm 37. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Peter saying, listen, there is refreshment in the presence of the Lord. And just think in my mind, if you could take that idea of what they were doing outside the temple, at the altar, at the lake, in the holy place, with the veil probably propped back up from when it tore open that Jesus died. And they all they saw was the veil. That was what they saw on the presence of God. And Peter's now saying, listen, you can have refreshment right in the presence of the Lord. You can come face to face with the living God. You can know the presence of God in your life, unlike anything that can happen in a stone and gold, beautiful temple building. In repentance, in turning away from sin, there's forgiveness and there is refreshing. You know from what he said that the Lord is coming back. As much as I don't want to do this, I will follow the Lord Jesus' example and I will close with the warning that he makes. The last thing he says, back in verse number 23, the last chapter 3, is it shall come about that every soul who does not listen. We could probably write that who disobeys. Every soul who disobeys that prophet, and speaking of Jesus, shall be destroyed for the people. And the morning is great, brothers and sisters. The morning is absolutely great. Revelation 21. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life is cast into a lake of fire, from which there is no escape. In Matthew 27, when Jesus was finishing up that great sermon on the mount, you, you, you think, why did he finish all the high school? And for the same reason he finished where he finished, I'm going to finish where he finished. Matthew 7, let's go there, put your Bibles, look over there. Matthew 7, what he says. You know, I've read these words hundreds of times. No exaggeration. And every time I read it, I just make me kind of roll inside. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Well, lawlessness can be exactly translated as disobedient. That's what lawlessness means. Just disobey what the law says. And Peter finishes up, or he's close to the end of his message in Acts chapter 3, and he puts that point to them. All those who disobey what this prophet, the Lord Jesus, says, Destruction will come 
But brothers and sisters, you need to know, you need to understand, we all need to be impressed with this real fact. Hell exists. Those who do not trust the Lord Jesus Christ, those who do not repent of sin, will be cast in the darkness of the place called hell. And there will be no escape. And say, oh, yeah, but you know, I did all these great things for the Lord. You can even say, Do we not prophesy, Lord, in your name? Did not cast out demons in your name, Lord? Did not do all kinds of mighty works in your name, Lord? Surely I deserve to be welcomed in. But unless we repent of sin and cry out to God for forgiveness, there is no injury. That sounds like a very sober and want to finish on refreshment and forgiveness. Those are great things. Those are things that we can all know and enjoy. But Peter finished off with a warning. So must we. Brother and sister in Christ, what is your life like? What's going on in your life? You don't have to answer me. But I plead with you, take time to answer God. What is going on in your life? Is there sin in your life that needs to be repented of and put aside? Revival starts. I was listening to a fellow talking about revivals in Korea back in the early 1900s. And they started as men and women were repenting and crying out to God for mercy inside the church, not outside. Inside the church. And brothers and sisters, we want to see this nation reach for Christ. We want to see souls one with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's got to start with repentance inside the church, in my heart, in your heart. Before the Lord, and He is the perfect judge, He can disclose to you what needs to be dealt with, what needs to be repented of and turned away from. Brothers and sisters, the joy of forgiveness that we can know when we repent and turn back David, as he was repenting in Psalm 51, where he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And I'm holy in the Holy Spirit. That's the joy, that's the revival joy that we can know when we come to God and we seek his forgiveness. God keeps his word. God keeps his promises. What a wonderful Savior we have this morning. Amen. Would you stand with me for a minute? Pray. sins are like scarlet, like scarlet on a white grass. 
We can be completely and totally removed. We can be cleansed, oh God. Not in word, not for money, but only in the blood of Christ. Father, we thank you and we praise you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Lord, I fail to speak enough about Christ this morning. Father, I plead with you that you would impress deeply upon each of our hearts the wonder and the reality of Christ. It's only in Christ that we can have that it is only in repenting of sin and turning towards him in faith that we can be forgiven. Father, as we stop and we consider the scriptures, we consider what they teach us, we realize it's nothing of ourselves, all of Christ, all of your grace and all of your mercy. Father, we thank you for such grace and such love. Thank you, O God, for such a sacrifice that he made. Father, we thank you that he came and spoke every word that you gave him to speak. He didn't hold back. In that moment, he spoke exactly what you would have him to say. Father, we thank you that he was a suffering servant. We thank you, O oh God, that he is coming again. He is bringing with him the restoration of all things, a new heavens and a new earth. Father, we realize also that when he comes, the thrones will be set up. All the nations of the earth will be gathered before him. And he will separate sheep from goats, dividing one from the other. Father, how many will stand on that day and cry out, Lord, Lord, give me more, give me more. And he will say, Depart, I live for you. And Lord, it's something that staggers the human mind to think of perfect justice. Perfect justice meted out by a perfectly holy, righteous, loving, and gracious God. Father, at the end of the day, every knee in heaven and earth will bow, and every knee and every voice will declare, He is Lord, the glory of the Father. Father, we cry out to you that you would do a work in our hearts. Lord, each of us has sin that needs to be repented of. Each of us has something that needs to be put away, put off. Father, we each have those around us who need to hear the gospel. Lord God, we cry out to you that you would work in our hearts and we would be quick to speak of the loveliness of our Savior and the joy of forgiveness, the joy of refreshment in the Lord that we can have knowing forgiveness of sin. Father, we thank you for the wonderful thing that we have, that that refreshment comes in the presence of you. Lord, may we be like the psalmist whose one desire was to dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon the Lord's beauty all the days of his life. And Father, we thank you that, that that freedom, that opportunity doesn't reside in a location, a place like Jerusalem. We can come into the very presence of the living God wherever we are, and we can turn our gaze upwards and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Father, we ask you, we plead with you, God, that you do the work, starting this church, starting the leadership in this church, and Father, work your way out, that we would.
would see this community, this neighborhood, life in Christ. Father, we ask for these things. We plead with you, O God, for your blessing and your help. Do so in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.